This is CinePunks. This episode, you die at dawn. Hi, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and uh, joining me tonight is the more educated half of Cinepunk, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. Still the one that hasn't seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari until you actually made me watch it, so, you know. I mean, there's got to be gaps. My, 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 uh, I often get criticised for this by uh, one of my parents. He frequently points out that I haven't seen such and such a film. I was just like, there is a lot of film out there. We all have our areas. Yeah. And To be fair, there are a lot of films, and they keep making new ones. I need, and I can't even keep up with those ones, let it? alone 120 year old, well, 102 year old 102 films. year old, yeah. So if you, ha- if you haven't seen this, uh, The Cabin Doctor Caligari is a 1920s German film, 1920 film, directed by Robert Weiner. And it is about a series of murders committed by a sleepwalker. And I think that is probably the plot in a nutshell. It is a silent movie. So on today's show, unlike some of the other ones you get, if you're listening to this, there's the podcast. Uh, there's no clips. Uh, it is impossible for me to adequately do a silent movie <laughs> clip in the podcast. We could read, we could read intertitles in, in dramatic voices. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. Uh, uh, one of the, the, the uh, like we have, this is only our second silent movie that we've covered on the podcast. Uh, the other one being The Kid, Charlie Chaplin's film. But one of the things that I love about silent movies is that generally speaking, there ain't a lot of reading to do in them. A lot of it is conveyed by the emotions and the expressions, and they are therefore a far more universal film format. This is why I always regard them as the purest form of film. Um, you're not a fan, though, massively of silent movies, are you? Well, my, the thing about me, Robert, is that I'm quite lazy. <laughs> and um, I learned to watch films with modern sound cinema. And watching silent cinema is a different way of consuming cinema. And that involves me having to put on a different way of watching films. Mm. And me being lazy, it requires an effort for me to step out of the normal, comfortable, oh, I'm watching a nice movie um, mode and into the right, okay, I'm watching silent film, which is it interacts with the viewer in a different way. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are some magnificent silent movies. There are some silent movies that I adore, um, but I'm still too lazy to watch them very often. You know, I love the kid. I adore that movie. Uh-huh. Um, have I watched it since we did the podcast? No, I have not. It, I mean, it's 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 sort of an interesting space. Like, I was really interested when we did the kid to find out that that Ben really connected with it. Mm-hmm. I would love to to have been available for us to do the pod tonight with him because, again, I'm intrigued to see what he would make of this kind of film, mm. um, and particularly because a lot of it is so stylized i mean you know for, for for folks that haven't seen it there are a few films in the silent era that i think you probably should watch and the cabinet of dr caligari is one of them largely because its influence i feel is felt through so much of certainly modern cinema but i, w- I, w- I would specify um things like fantasy and and horror uh, and film noir and film noir yeah although i think caligari is maybe less of an influence on film noir as as it is on horror, for example, um, well, but I mean, German I, expressionism and uh, sort of silent cinema. Yeah, yeah. okay, I might might agree to disagree with you on that. Okay. but you probably have some really sort of um, in depth research to back it up, so maybe I won't <laughs> disagree with you too loudly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, I, I mean, so well, well that, 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 let's talk about this. So this is a fairly open-ended conversation about it. We're using Caligari as a starting off point. Now, if you've been listening to the last few podcasts, um, you'll know that we've been talking about unreliable narrators and about the strange spaces of other worlds and dreamscapes. In our last episode, we specifically talked about Fight Club. And when we were talking about a film that's all about sleep deprivation, it seems that you cannot talk about Fight Club without... And we did, without referencing back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is also about terrible acts that are committed by somebody who is barely conscious. Yeah. Um, now, for those of you at home, <laughs> it's, it's probably worthwhile pointing out that both Rachel and I are suffering from chronic sleep deprivation at the moment <laughs> for different reasons. We are identifying quite strongly with the characters in the films that we're talking about. I don't know if this is life imitating art or art, you know, or what's going on here. But I mean, I am suffering from the most chronic insomnia. It's it's it is doing my head in, and I am starting to struggle. To I'm not struggling to, to sort of discern reality from from fantasy at this point. But when I'm dreaming, my dreams are certainly more vivid. What you're saying is you could actually be murdering people and you wouldn't know about it. I don't think I'd be that bad because there's always this idea that you couldn't do something that you wouldn't normally do. And I don't think that I'd be that kind of person. Um, I don't think I'm at that stage yet, but I can certainly. <laughs> That's a relief. You can blow <laughs> up any credit card companies. But I certainly have an appreciation for the fact that things start to change. I mean, sleep deprivation is used as a form of torture um, because of the way that it changes the way that you think and the way that you rationalize and the way that you interpret the world. And I've definitely experienced um, sleep deprivation as a form of domestic torture and it's not a pleasant experience um which in turns can also be used alongside something like gaslighting as a as, as a mechanism for control and i don't think that's too far removed from what's going on within caligari and and, and cesare or caesar caesar with an e i would have cesare i pronounced it cesare i thought it was cesare i mean i've never actually checked the pronunciation of this caesar with an e well, if it's in Italy, it's set in northern Italy, the film isn't. Oh, no, is it? No, it's not. Where did I get that from? Oh, the original Caligari was in Italy. He was an Italian mystic. Okay. Well, it's an Italian name, and as far as I'm aware, it's pronounced Cesare. We, we, we shall have different uh, ways of pronouncing the name as we go through the rest of the podcast. Tweet us. Tweet us about it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Correct us. So, Tell me how I'm right and Robbie's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in, in terms of that, in terms of the... the so, I mean, where do we start with this? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, even even that, I mean, it's the unreliable narrator side of it, I think, is is the most sort of pertinent point here. Because even when you talk about, you know, this being a film about sleep deprivation and about what can be um, the, the sort of the, the warping of reality through sleep deprivation and what can be uh, prevailed upon a person to do when they're under that kind of altered reality. but the 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 frame narrative mm. casts that narrative into doubt. So, is is Cesare a somnambulist that is under the malign influence of Doctor Caligari, um, or is he just a harmless sort of in, inmate? And Francis is the the, the person who's who's uh, delusional and fantasizing the whole thing. Um. So. Spoilerific as per always. Uh, yeah, sorry, spoiler alert. To be fair, the film is over a hundred years old at this point. So, it, it, I mean, if you haven't, I don't even think it matters whether or not you know what happens to appreciate the film, um, because I known about the plot a long time before I ever see it, and I still think it's a it's a wonderful, yeah. fascinating work of art. Um, it, so the, the the framing device for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, basically opens up in a, a mental institute, and our 
protagonist is is sitting there telling somebody about um, his story and we then flashback and most of the film is told in a flashback although within his telling of the story there's a flashback within the flashback um, to an interpretation of what Caligari is actually about and at the end we come back out of the flashback back into the institution and we discover that um, our, our storyteller appears to be one of the inmates in the institution and his spin on people seems to be influenced by the people that he's seen around him it's a very wholesome wonderland now that i'm thinking about it Mm, it is a bit isn't it um but but then there's also you know that to to what extent are we supposed to accept that narrative and to what extent are we supposed to um question whether or not because i think the closing the the what do you call it the iris Iris, yeah yeah um on caligari's face um it, it it demands that we question his integrity I mean, we, he looks directly into the camera mm. and this is the guy that we've spent the past hour with being a, a, a homicidal, um, sort of deranged um, Caligari fanboy. Mm. And um, we close in on his face and we hold there and he looks perfectly benign. And he's given every indication in that side of the frame narrative that he is actually caring mm. for poor Francis who has suffered some kind of psychotic break. But the, the the genre sort of dictates that we then question that. I, I mean, I think it's the point at which he puts on his glasses right at the end because mm. he doesn't have them on. He comes down stairs looking rather immaculate, very prim and proper and very respectable, unlike the disheveled man that we've been playing about with for the last hour. Um, but then he puts on his glasses right at the very end and suddenly he becomes Caligari again yeah. in that moment. And I assume that he is, in fact, that we've got some sort of replacement of the staff of the hospital and that Caligari is Caligari all along. That, that... Mm. So one of the things that... That's... But then there's also, the, that sorry to interrupt you, but there's also the question of to what extent was that ever part of the original um, idea behind the piece and to what extent do we, do we read that as being antithetical to what we've been asked to well, do as the main narrative? I mean, the framing device uh, was uh, a condition that was forced upon them. It was something that they had to add in at a later stage in production. It wasn't the original plan. Yeah. And it does slightly change things, but I think that all it does is add to our level of distrust. Yeah. So you, if, if you take the frame aside, what you have is a fairly straightforward story of a kind of gaslighting episode and a homicidal maniac. But then when you add the framing, what you've got is is the level of doubt, which often accompanies somebody being reported for a crime anyway. Um, yeah. Reading one about one this morning about a, a, an incident with a, a person who I won't name for various reasons. Um, but there's a story going around today and even reading the comments on that, it feels like the same sort of thing. It's this instant mm-hmm. distrust of somebody who's telling their story, even when they present you with evidence. Um, one of the things that's been cited, though, in terms of this is the choice of the German expressionistic style. I mean, yeah. it's all full of artifice. This is this particular film is sort of a heightened unreality um, with very, very peculiar angled sets. Um, it's all shot indoors, uh, you know, on these massive, glorious painted backdrops. And when we open, it's like we're in this very realistic um, institution yard. And then when Ooh, he's doing do the... Do we fo- think that? Well, we do because initially... Even, even, even 
with that, I mean, there's still evidence of the, the German expressionist um, mise-en-scene within the yard. I mean, they, they still have the, 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 the sort of the trees and the, the abstract shapes and, um, and, and I mean, the, the, the closing end of the frame narrative as well, we still got yep. that very expressionistic mise-en-scene, which I also think it kind of casts doubt on whether or not the, the frame narrative Oh, it does. Is to be disbelieved or where that sits? It, no, it does, and that's what I was going to get onto because it opens up on that kind of when you when it when you first open the film, it does feel quite realistic because then whenever he does the flashback, that's when everything becomes really, really heightened, and we spend the next hour in heightened unreality. Yeah. Um. But at the end, when we come back out of that, once he comes out of the garden and he goes back into the the asylum, I mean, the asylum is still painted in all these glorious angles and things. So our our perception is still skewed and I think there's still some sort of sense of I don't know if it's artifice or what because it you know who's telling this story that we're watching I suppose is the question that then gets asked exactly yes who is in charge and I mean that's that's kind of expressionism in a nutshell isn't it it's that you know there is no real sort of subjective no objective reality Mm. there is only subjective experience um, kind of externalized so objective reality is 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 not actually a thing so you know you, you're free to make up your own mind really um, and I don't think the film gives you any really clear um, sense of of what it's nudging you towards <laughs> if it does it takes it away again very quickly yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah I, I mean there is it, it it does sort of exist in this strange um space that is 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 heightened uh reality heightened unreality i guess um but also surreality i mean this is this is a film that isn't just expressionist it's a surrealist film um partly because it is dealing with with dreams and and Mm. you know anything that's dealing with that subconscious is is therefore a you know as a surrealist manifesto as much as it is an expressionist thing um in in terms of the uh in terms of the plotting um, you weren't very keen on on one of the characters. I seem to recall I got messages Alan? from you the other night. Yeah, I was basically live texting um, Robert on WhatsApp while I was watching the thing. Going, Alan's a dick, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Alan, surely not. You were far too young. Um, you know, score one for Cal- uh, Caligari. <laughs> <laughs> I- yeah, I wasn't fussed on Alan to be honest, and I kind of understand that he's he's supposed to stand in for, or we're supposed to understand him as kind of standing in for that kind of romantic um sort of late 19th century romantic ideal to mm. a certain extent and that's probably why i hated them so much i was I, like oh you're doing a byron aren't you i just didn't didn't i mean for me he was such a non-entity but there's a there's a bit of homoeroticism that seems to be going on around some of those discussions there's a there's a sequence just before he gets bumped off when you see the two gentlemen sort of talking about him and holding hands and you know oh whatever he decides and just like like there's something going on here there is there's <laughs> There's definitely a subtext. Um, I mean, Cesare himself, I, I, I mean, just for me, feels like a BDSM character. Yeah. I seem to recall that was part of your texting back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I see it. I see it. Yeah, it wouldn't have been my immediate read, but you do you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, like in itself, I mean, the, the character of the somnambulist is definitely a fetishized character. Yeah. Um, you know, he's someone who is constrained within a confines of a box, which is like in a fetish of its own own kind um it's also the skin tight black 
I mean, he's the, he is the master goth, really, isn't he? And he's the the protagonist, <laughs> the prototype he's quite of emo. Very, very. I do like a bit of emo, though. I mean, like that that look appeals to me. I liked it. <laughs> I've met your husband. He's not emo at all. He's not remotely emo. No, and that, that is to his strength. But um, <laughs> yeah, but that there there will forever be a part of me that's permanently wedged in the early parts, the early years of the century. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, I mean, on that, it was, it was something that actually just watching it this time that it occurred to me that I don't think I picked up on before, but has been cited by other people was um, the Bowie. And <laughs> this inv- one of the people that this, this character has influenced is David Bowie. I mean, his last uh, video for, for Lazarus, um, literally shot a couple months before he dies, includes the char- a character of a somnambulist that... <gasps> is dressed i have seen that video but not for quite some time you you go back and watch it even down to the costume it there right. there is there are stripes across the body that it's that in a way echo the markings right. that you see in cesare um there is he is a synonymous i've I'll, I'll post a, a photograph in the sleeve notes for this on the on the on the website um but bowie's actual production designs for that you know specifically refer to this i mean it, it's very and he comes out of a cupboard Damn it! I mean, it's it, it's it's as it's as as like it as you can get. Um, well, I mean, no, number one, Bowie was in, in, incredibly culturally informed and, and intelligent, so mm. it really was. And number two, this film has been basically like the 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 the, the foundation of so much um, visual style and visual information and visual storytelling that has flown, uh, flown, flowed um sleep deprived uh <laughs> well, can, well can we talk about that because i mean the, the, when i suggested that we we cover this one part of it was because it just felt like a natural extension to the films that we've been discussing on the pod of the last few weeks um but also it's about its importance and why is it that that why are we telling telling our listeners and our viewers that they should watch this film well, it's the great granddaddy of basically every kind of non or not explicitly realist uh, movie that has is it too much of a stretch to say in every non-explicitly realist movie that has come afterwards I mean it has been the foundation the linchpin that informed how horror developed in Hollywood Mm. um, via uh, Universal via Alfred Hitchcock um, via film noir Um, you know you you can see it um, and and in in just about the, the sort of the chiaroscuro lighting that it it employs, um, the the kind of uh, uh, externalization of emotion. You can see this in everything, really. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say that entirely about this one film. Um, okay. no, I that, think about German expressionism, German as expressionism as a whole. As a whole, okay. Um. I mean, I do think there are very specific influences that have been drawn from this film. Um, but I, in terms of some of the stuff that you're talking about there, I, I mean, definitely German Expressionism is a huge influence on film noir and on horror. Yeah. Uh, part well, of the I mean, reason- it's a German Expressionist uh, directors um, yeah. transplanted from Germany uh, after the, the rise of the Nazi party. Um, just basically taking the German Expressionist sensibilities. And German Expressionist uh, film and cinema was popular mm-hmm. um, in, in sort of... Uh, sort of post post world war one um america um to the extent that actually the the sort of the american the u.s production companies and distributors were getting a bit annoyed about it because they they felt like they were being kind of crowded out of their own market Mm -hmm. so it was 
enormously popular and um so the, the sort of the, the the stylized images i mean albert hitchcock was sent off to a german studio at the start of his career to basically learn how to german expressionist um and he sort of brings that back and and it's, it's everywhere i mean you see you see that influence in in most of his movies mm-hmm. um now not the same kind of um sort of explicit i mean the explicit rejection of realism is something that's that's that is a that that stays with German expressionism, but what flows out of that visual style begins to be mapped onto more sort of oh, realist. I hate realist, but you know, you know, I'm doing the obnoxious air quotes around realist um, depictions of um, horrific mm. events. Yeah, um, the the there is definitely aesthetic qualities that are lifted i mean you know it is as you said that that very very stark black and white it's the 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 black blacks it's the white whites it's the interesting angles interesting angles i say (laughs) um uh, yeah it's 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 shifting it from theater to film Mm -hmm. which is also odd because caligari feels very stagey yes it's incredibly yeah. stagey, and the the chiaroscuro, which basically what we're talking about there, is black and white, stark black and white, big shadows, things like that, is largely painted. Yeah, it's it's very little of it to do with the actual lighting of the sets. The lighting is yeah. there to light up our characters, but it's all about the makeup. It's the heavy eye makeup. It's the heavy black and white of the sets. Everything is very carefully controlled in that way. What what ends up happening with some of our films, if we're talking about Fritz Lang movies, if we're looking at Metropolis. We mm. even talk about Nosferatu, which is only a couple of years after this. Yeah. Um, you know, with Murnau, we're we're looking at films that are that are moving the camera, that are presenting us with real locations and real spaces, and it's the way that they photograph them. But it's still this sort of enhanced, a uh, sort of hyper, hyper extreme kind of uh, storylines and, and and filmmaking and, and and visual style. Um. I mean, it's one of those things we could, we could talk a lot about the sort of influences we have. For those who who watch or listen to our podcast, we have um had elements of of Caligari has been fed through before. Rachel's probably never. I don't even know if we've noticed, but we have used images from Caligari from our advertising right from the very very beginning. Um, in terms I of that, I have noticed. I just can't remember. Yeah, exactly. It's. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I mean, it, it's it's the aesthetic was something that I thought was was quite pointed, but also yeah. we talked about uh, Casino Royale. Yes, yes. There's a whole course. sequence yep. in the in the Berlin yep. training camp where it's yep. all straight lifted out of Caligari. If you haven't seen that film, it's not the the um uh, the the more recent version. The um yeah, it's the nine, name? It's the 1967. Um, totally blanking on his name, Daniel Craig. Daniel there Craig. We go. The Daniel Craig version. Yeah, it's not that one. It's the completely bonkers 1960 <laughs> player one. Um. <laughs> which is unlike any Bond you have ever seen in your entire life. And you should definitely watch it, but just make sure that you're reasonably sober because otherwise <laughs> you will wonder what was, who, who spiked your drink. Um. So, I mean, the influence is there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking out of a Frankenweenie cup. Um, yeah, there you go. I mean, like Tim Burton stuff is, yeah. is very obviously influenced. And I think visually that's where it most, I find it most of the obvious echoes. Something like Beetlejuice with its very stylized and, and, and Nightmare Before Christmas with their very mm-hmm. stylized angular sets, um, the trees, the tentacle trees, and the, the 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 sort of the black and whites, the sharp black and whites. Yeah, like it does feel like there's an aesthetic that if you're into an aesthetic, you should probably watch Caligari. 
I am into that aesthetic. Um, I'm not massively into German expressionism, though. What's the resistance about German expressionism, then? Um, I think I like it. Right, this is going to make me sound so shallow. But what I like about the German expressionism um, is that they're very beautifully crafted, you know, every frame of picture mm. uh, style of directing. It will come as no surprise to that my favourite director is Ridley Scott. Um, directors that focus very strongly on making sure every image just looks beautiful and you could stop it at any point and there would always be something wonderful to look at and it doesn't matter how many times you watch it there's always something new and beautiful to look at mm -hmm. um, I love that and I love chiaroscuro lighting I love the dramatic effects that go with it I get very impatient with films that are weird for the sake of being weird <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like be normal <laughs> <laughs> but it's not fair to I mean is it fair to say that all German expressionism is weird for the sake of being weird? No, it's not. No, that's not at all fair. That's a gross generalization and it does not apply to most or all of them. But I mean, I can uh, understand it, it with this. Of, yeah, but it is kind of its thing. Is It's, it's not, oh, this is where I'm going to trip myself up because it's, this is not actually um, true to the way I experience film, but um, it is true that it's not trying to to um faithfully represent the world as it sees around it it's trying to to take a slight angle on that world and mm. i don't necessarily have a huge problem with that it's just i think that caligari just um takes that angle and kind of tips it over another 70 degrees mm. so, um, so it's almost like it's just too far it's just a bit, yeah, it's just a bit sort of, and but don't get me wrong, I mean, I was engaged with it. Mm. Um, once Alan died, I thought it, it really improved. <laughs> it, it, it does pick but up a bit. It certainly picks up once he was no longer mooning about the place being annoying. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I didn't wish for him, oh, I kind of did wish for him to die, actually, I'm, I'm lying. But um, it, it's it's a really, it's a really interesting, and again, because I knew, I, I knew vaguely what the narrative was about, um, and I knew that it was about the kind of the, the externalizing of that subjective experience of insanity. Mm -hmm. um, so I did kind of have a sense that, that, you know, Francis was going to turn out to be um, insane. For mm. want of a better world word, um, but even knowing all of that, it is fascinating to watch that unfold. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it 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 just you know, it doesn't really work for me that that complete, um, that completely subjectivizing of mm -hmm. of reality, obnoxious air quotes. So I mean, if if you took off the framing that comes on this, if you took off mm. the bits set in the asylum at, at the beginning, and the end where we kind yeah. of work out that he's he's mental too apparently i would that have improved do you think your appreciation for the film or would you still be left in the same sort of like this is no it's still being crazy in, yeah i'd still be in the same because i mean the film is going out of its way to remind you that you're watching artifice mm. um it is going out of its way to remind you that you're watching something that is not trying to represent um objective reality um, at all times it's doing that and it's doing that through its acting it's doing that through its uh, mise-en-scene it's doing that through its um, cinematography it's doing that through its lighting um, which is an aspect of mise-en-scene of course but um, it's 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 not the it's not the story as such I mean I think that story mm. uh, you know 
when the story is from, from memory, when the story was presented to the studio and they agreed to buy it, um, it wasn't presented as you should do this as an expressionist piece. That was a, mm. a production decision that was taken um, along the lines of, of down the road as it was, it was being um, developed. Mm. So you could very easily do this as, you know, for straight horror, if there's any such thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, and I don't, you know, I, I like the story. I like the aesthetics. Um, it's never going to be my favorite movie. I guess it's, I mean, like it's interesting to have this conversation with you because I think it's given me a bit of a better insight into why some of the other films that we, we talk about, not everything that makes it onto air, um, some of the stuff that we talk about in private, for instance, that there's things that you're quite resistant to. There are directors that you cannot connect with. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, what I'm getting from this is, is an insight into the things that make you tick. Um, but also that is quite useful for discerning how audiences might feel about it too Mm. um like this is not one of my favorite films it's not one of my favorite silent movies i think it's a fascinating film i think it's really important i have fallen asleep during it on multiple occasions (laughs) which is i mean i think today may have been the first music I mean, well, on on that particular the score that on on the version that we watched is is was was very effective, but obviously there are lots of scores available. Um, I find, I think today may have been the first time I've been able to get through it all largely awake, despite being sleep deprived. I don't know what it is about it. I find it quite hypnotic, and I find the same thing with Dreyer's uh, The Vampire. It also kind of. Um, sends me into a sort of slightly somnambulistic state. There's something <laughs> about the, the about the imagery and about the, the sort of the dreamlike state almost yeah. almost encourages you to fantasize. I guess whilst you're watching it. I mean, a cinematic experience should have us engaging with what we're seeing on the screen and and sort of buying into it. But if you're not paying attention and you miss the intertitles, and this isn't often true of mm. silent film, um, because the acting and the sort of the staging of it is generally geared towards making you making sure you're able to understand it, and the intertitles are kind of um, additional to that. But mm. if you're not keeping an eye on the intertitles in this film, you can very easily miss what's going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely, huge chunks of plot yeah. are just and gone. And a couple of times, a couple of times, I did have to go back and and reread the intertitles to make sure that I understood what was happening. Uh-huh. because otherwise, it had just you know, what bonkers tangent has this gone off on now? Why is he in a lunatic assignment? Oh, right, okay, fair enough. Um, but um, it, it's and again, I think that's part of not trying to present something that is realistic. Um, you know, when we understand how that narrative works, when it's it's kind of a realistic, you know, three act structure, X follows what comes before X, which is followed by Y, which is followed by Z. I do know the alphabet. I just can't do it backwards. You've got um, a doctorate. I mean, not in the alphabet. Thank you. Um, but but so you don't have the same kind of cues and you don't have the same kind of roadmap mm. with something that is going out of its way to be a little bit nuts. So um, you, you do, you need the intertitles to kind of contextualize things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was confused by the segment after the funeral, which seemed to add precisely bugger all to everything that was going on. It's just like a little sort of, there's an intertitle after the funeral, after Alan's funeral, it's like, mm. yeah, Alan's dead. Um, after the funeral, then we just see Francis and Jane 
walking mm-hmm. along the street looking miserable. That's literally it. There's I don't even 15, remember that. Yeah, there's about high. 15 seconds of them walking along the street looking miserable. I've totally forgotten Nothing that. else happens. The funeral is a complete non-event narratively. Uh-huh. The walking along the street is a non-event narratively. It contributes nothing to the overall. We already know they're really sad because they've been mugging about it into the camera mm-hmm. for a while at this stage. I have no idea why that's there. I have no answers. There you go. I have stumped you. Uh-huh. I don't I don't remember the sequence and I have yeah. literally just finished watching the film before <laughs> there doing you the pod. Go. <laughs> um so I must have turned away for 15 seconds. because uh, yeah. it has, has has no recollection at all. Um I, I just want to quickly kind of touch on on sort of the, the anti-authority kind of discussions about this, because this is one of the things that's said about this film. And also a lot of the German expressionist films that are coming up at that point, um, as well, is is there is a there's a view that says that these are commentaries on German authority, that they, the, there's a very famous book and also a documentary for, called From Caligari to Hitler, which views a lot of this stuff as um, sort of preempting, sort of foreshadowing the rise of the Nazi party and, and Hitler's Germany, helped as well by the fact that most of these directors end up buggering off to, yeah. you know, to Britain and to the US for their own safety because so many of them are Jews or so many of them are left-wing thinking um and hitler wasn't keen on that kind of stuff and you know this this isn't one of those conversations where we've reduced everything to hitler this this is a, an actually <laughs> relevant point in terms of a discussion godwin's what is it godwin's, godwin's law yeah, yeah godwin's law that's the one <laughs> every, every internet discussion you have at some point will denigrate it will, will disintegrate into uh talking about nazis whereas actually that's a hugely important part it's of the cultural is, yeah, context. It wasn't the time. us that did it; somebody else did it first. <laughs> so th- this has already been Godwin's Lord. Well, um, I mean, it's it's true though because he he he. I mean, Vina left. left Germany um, because of the Nazis because he was outed as a Jew, even though he'd been signing up as a Protestant for years. Konrad Veit, who plays uh, Cesare, left Germany because of the rise of the Nazis. I mean, the the people who made this film literally left to save their own lives. Yeah. So we are perfectly appropriate to talk about this. Um, and we're recording this, incidentally, just a few days after Holocaust Memorial Day. So there's a sort of pertinency and a, a poignancy to, to that as well. Um, but do you see that sort of rise of the, 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 the... I mean, how do you feel this is talking about authority? Is this a, a pro-authoritarian film? Is this an anti-authoritarian film? Where does it actually sit? Because I'm not sure myself. I, I can definitely see the anti-authoritarian um uh sort of um sentiment all the way through it mm-hmm. and i don't think the framing narrative i know that the the writers um objecting to framing narrative um had the sense that that undid their their kind of their anti-authoritarian stance with it mm-hmm. um and i can see why they think that and I, I think there's a certain um argument to be made for that because um the sort of anti-authoritarian narrative is kind of dependent on uh, Francis not being a completely unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. But that said, I don't think Francis is a completely unreliable narrator. No. I think the framing narrative um, gives enough um, doubt as to whether or not um, Caligari is as benign as he's trying to position himself in that, that I think it is it, it is perfectly reasonable to see this film as kind of a a, a, sort of a cry of rage against as I mean by all accounts you know Germany got into World War One um not quite by accident but 
but certainly not strategically or deliberately, but but due to a set of treaties that it had set up mm-hmm. that were never meant to operate in that way. And everybody has piled on in um, and, and had the most destructive, damaging conflict that the world had ever seen up to that point. Mm. And the young men that came back, I mean, I had a, a relative who was institutionalized for the rest of his life due to shell shock because what they had experienced was just so appallingly awful. And they had been dragged into that yeah. by authorities that had no skin in the game at all. They weren't the ones dying. They weren't the ones being brought back with bits missing. They weren't the ones being brought back so traumatized by what they'd seen that they were never able to function in society again. Mm. So yeah, there was that there is that element where, and of course these these two guys are are both, I mean, pacifists and they're the, the two writers, they're both pacifists. One has served in the war and been um horrified by what he saw. Both are actively questioning the authority that dragged Germany into that war and, and post-war, post-World War Germany, the Weimar Republic is a mess. It's a mess. And it's the, the economy is collapsing. Inflation is skyrocketing. Uh, people's life savings are being wiped out. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for this film being a sort of, what the fuck, guys? What were you doing? Um, and a, a cry of rage. And I think, you know, you can see the authority figures in Caligari are, they are, they, they are obnoxious, they're not to be trusted as such, they're, they're perched up above the, the common man, they're mm-hmm. accessed via steps, they're elevated, they are not with the common people at all. Um, and ultimately, um, the, the, the events have been um, manipulated by a madman. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think there's any issues at all looking at it as an anti-authoritarian film. Where I get a little bit more fang on a second is when that's used to kind of argue that these films predict Nazism. Um, and and they, they say something about the, the, the psyche of, of uh, the German people as a whole, because I think that's a hell of a stretch to make about any mm. any film or any cultural product ever. I guess the thing is when you start looking at a bunch of them and you start seeing these threads that are that are being repeated, um, when you look at sort of the concepts, particularly something like uh that control and hypnosis is something that seems to come up again and again as well. Mm-hmm. I mean we see the same thing in Nosferatu with the power of that that creature that's able to, to travel and to and, and to control people. We see the same thing in, in Metropolis with the mm-hmm. way that Maria is able to control entire, you know, workforces. Um, and and manipulate people and the the balance between the power of the up aboves and the anarchy of the, the you know that exists there, but how manipulation works. Yeah, I think when you look at that, you can't help but wonder: is this a reflection of stuff of, of conversations that are happening, maybe in private, but they are happening? That there is a sort of unease after the First World War and Nazism. To be fair, I mean Hitler's rise to power is is pretty quick and it's not that far off and it's not possible unless something is happening already that he's tapping into well it Um, it is i mean the the country is an absolute mess it's in bits it has been crippled by post-war settlement um people's there's there's no point in saving money anymore because you can't buy bread um so i mean i i think it's 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 very easy to see Hitler's rise in context there because mm. he came in and said, actually, this is simple, guys. 
there's a simple fix here. Let's just um, sort of scapegoat this entire group of people. It's their fault, it's nothing you did, nothing to worry about here at all. Um, and when people are suffering to that extent, they are desperate to hear that message. So I wonder, is there a general global feel at the time about class as well, though? Because when you look at what's going on in, in for instance, in, in Hollywood silent cinema, you know, with the rise, particularly comedy, it is always a really good lens to look at through. A lot of mm. it is about working class people um, battling against authority figures who really there's a massive disconnect. Chaplin's really good at it. Yes. Uh, Laurel and Hardy are really good at doing this. Keaton's really good at doing this. So Keaton sometimes feels he's slightly more with it. Um, not far off screwball comedy either at this no. point as well, which is <laughs> all about class. Which is something something we will get to at some point during yes, the pods. Yes, I definitely. Oh, can we do um, It Happened One Night? Please, 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 we'll, please, we'll, please. We'll, 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 <laughs> we'll preempt. Um, but uh, I mean, so within global silence and within what's happening at this period, there is stuff there. Um, you know, we tend to focus on particular films and particular directors. Uh, and even what D.W. Griffiths is doing, I mean, it's probably worth a discussion at some point. But I, I just... If you make me watch that film, we, we, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> Not everything we do is comfortable on, on, on this. I mean, it's because this, three this is... Hours. <laughs> but this is uh, this is also part of what we're trying to do is, I mean, we'll watch stuff that... that that maybe we feel we should stuff that that's bona fide classic stuff that is is sort of those an, sort of anchor points of, of of cinema history, but at the same time there there are things that neither of us wants to go and explore. But every now and then I think it's useful for us to explore things like that. I mean, this I knew you were slightly resistant, <laughs> but it's also you've seen it and you can see its its impact. Oh, I knew, and I mean, you know, I the I when I was watching it um i it was almost like being sort of guided along through um a room full of, of images and oh yeah i recognize that one oh i recognize that one oh gotcha, i recognize that one oh yeah there's that, that mise-en-scene there um so i mean it's pervasive you can you don't need to have seen the film as such to have a, a really clear sense of its um visual importance mm. however it is important to have seen the film and i'm glad you made me <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that because yeah. <laughs> you're not getting better than that. Tonight, no, I, I I know when to end the conversation. <laughs> Walk away. Um, so that if you, if you haven't seen it, uh, I I thoroughly recommend doing it. You'll find it on YouTube very easily. It's a hundred year old film, um, so there's plenty of versions of it out there. Try and get a nice, a nice. Do not get one. it confused with the 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 sort of quote unquote remakes or the sequels <laughs> because those are very very different. <laughs> Yeah, there was, I mean, Vina himself, I ended up trying to do a sound version of this with Jean Cocteau, which I would have loved to have yeah, seen. Yeah, you would have loved that. I would have been in my element. I mean, that would have been absolutely glorious. With You'd getting have got those... that tattooed on your arm. <laughs> it might actually have been the thing that persuaded me to get a tattoo, indeed. Um, and they didn't do that. But then there's a, there's a Robert Lippert produced version that, that gets made in the 1960s, um, which has very little to do with this at all. There's also a, a couple of dubious sequels and uh, <laughs> there's a slightly porny version of this as well, which I, I, some of you might want to watch. I don't know. I haven't seen it myself. I can't recommend it or not recommend it. Um, and there's a 2005 remake, which I haven't had a chance to watch because um, I was finding it hard to get hold of. But apparently it was it's basically a remake that's done against the backdrops from the original film so uh, as an exercise i'd be quite interested to see that and if i ever do i'm sure i'll post something up on our, our our website about it um but yeah so look go and watch it 
go and check it out have a little view of it if you're into tim burton films i think it's definitely an anchor point that you need to see oh um, yeah i think everything if, tim burton's ever done has been influenced by this film i think you know so if, you, if you're into tim burton or the cure or you just like walking around with a, a face full of mascara i mean this is a film that probably should be on your shelves should you only ever watch it once um you know give it a viewing <laughs> That's my, that's my recommendation for it. Um, so, Rachel, thanks very much. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, if you've enjoyed the film, if you don't enjoy the film, if you have any thoughts at all, just contact us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTubes. Uh, you can find this on our podcast. Uh, listen back to it again, share, tell your friends, and uh, we will catch you again very, very soon. Bye.